Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, January 17th. We actually get to start today with the fact that there may be some surprising good news for a change coming out of Congress, especially for Americans with children, especially low-income families with children, who ironically, some of you know this, some of you experienced it, saw child poverty rates drop dramatically at the start of the pandemic, but have since gone back up. For more than a year now, Democrats in Congress have been trying to strike a deal with Republicans to revive the policy known as the child tax credit, or at least extend the child tax credit that still exists. In exchange, in a deal that is reportedly very close now to being struck, Republicans want to renew some corporate tax breaks that had recently expired themselves. Well, yesterday, two of the main lawmakers on tax issues, these are Senate Finance Chair Ron Wyden, the Democrat from Oregon, and House Ways and Means Chair Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, announced the two parties, at least the leaderships, had struck a deal. Now, the new deal is, well, kind of the same as the one they had tried to pass over a year ago, at least the Democrats did. Democrats would get a limited version of a child tax credit in exchange for greater incentives for domestic research and development and faster depreciation of certain kinds of capital investments for business. I know that sounds wonky, but it affects a lot of people directly and will explain. But by no means is this a done deal. What? You're talking about a deal? But it's not a done deal. Yeah, Congress has a tight deadline to implement any changes to the tax code that would be effective for the 2023 tax filing season, uh, which is upon us from now until April 15th. So joining me now to break down the negotiations and who they stand to benefit is Dylan Matthews, senior correspondent and lead writer at Vox, who wrote an explainer on a lot of this. Dylan, thanks for coming on with us. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me, Brian. And we'll get into some of the specifics of the Wyden-Smith deal, named after those two lawmakers I mentioned in the intro. Uh, But first, what basically, for people who don't know, is the child tax credit? So the child tax credit has had a long and sort of strange life. Um, It began in 1997 as a a middle-class tax cut um, that was agreed to by Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. Uh, basically, Gingrich wanted uh, to cut capital gains taxes for sort of wealthy people with investments who pay taxes on it. Um, I think he was aware that it would look bad if he did that without doing anything for middle class families. Uh, and so he and Clinton cut a deal um, on a credit that was just 400 bucks uh, for uh, families that owed taxes uh, and uh, uh, with children. Um, and so it started there and it was a very modest credit. Um, and it's just continually expanded. It was expanded a little bit in the 2001 uh, tax cuts by George W. Bush. It was expanded a lot in 2009 uh, by Obama as part of the stimulus. And then that was extended. Um, and it really uh, was expanded pretty dramatically. It was doubled, actually, uh, in 2017 under the Trump um, uh, tax cuts uh, to become sort of the main tax break for for families with with kids, but it always had a limitation um, that it was it was meant for families with earnings and initially it was meant for families that owed taxes. 
And that excluded a lot of people at the bottom. And uh, we can get into what happened in 2021, but a lot of the fight on the Democratic side has been to to take it from just being a tax break for, for middle class, uh, uh, upper middle class families to one that actually targets the poor. Yeah, do talk about what happened in 2021 or generally during the pandemic. Uh, some regular listeners know we've had Congressman Richie Torres from the Bronx on the show several times talking about this. Uh, he represents the poorest, most low-income congressional district in America, and he said the impact of the pandemic-era child tax credit on po- uh, poverty rates, child poverty rates in his district was dramatic. So talk about that. Sure. Um, and so so one piece of international context that's useful to know here is that most countries around the world, rich countries, uh, have what's called a child allowance. And so that's that's money that's paid to parents, usually without regard to income, um, for being parents. And the U.S. has never had this. And there's been an effort by anti-poverty advocates for a while to try to turn the child credit into this. Um, by by making it not based on income at all, sending it out monthly, just making it a regular check. Um, and New York listeners might be interested to know that a lot of the effort uh, behind the scenes was done by by people in New York. Uh, Columbia has a lot of researchers who worked on this. Um, there's a guy named David Harris, who's a New York-based philanthropist and activist who, who I think is, is the real unsung hero of this. Um, but they were able to persuade the Biden administration to include a measure in the 2021 stimulus. So this is the, the second year of the pandemic. Biden has just become president. Uh, they they want to do a new round of stimulus checks to everybody. But activists in, in, on the outside and in Congress convince him to to increase the child tax credit from $2,000 to up to uh, $3,600 for parents of young kids and $3,000 for, for parents of older kids and to make it what's called fully refundable. Um, that might sound a little wonky, but it just means everybody gets it um, no matter how poor you are. Um, and it arranged for for at least half the year for it to be sent out as a monthly check. So from July to December 2021, parents were getting checks in the mail as opposed to getting sort of a big lump sum in their their tax return uh, come March or April of the next year. Yeah, um, that's, that's different, the checks in the mail during the year, the monthly checks. Absolutely, yeah. It, it changes how people uh, interact with it, how they spend it. Um, and it had a huge, huge impact um, that uh, I think child poverty fell uh, quite dramatically. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but but uh, at least a third, uh, maybe more like a half um, in, in that just that year. Um, it's a little hard to parse out because a lot of things were happening in 2021, as listeners remember. Um, stimulus checks were going out. Uh, the economy was kind of returning. It was a really dramatic time. But I think uh, poverty experts would agree that that this measure was very targeted at, at people at the bottom and and made a big difference. And then it went away. And then it went away. If it had cut child poverty so dramatically, why did it go away? Why did they allow it to go away? So I think it's, it's worth underlining how dramatic a policy shift this was. Um, in, in the 1990s, some listeners may remember, um, there was a huge fight over welfare reform. And, and what that fight was about was a program that gave cash uh, to parents of children without an expectation that they work. Um, and this was considered so controversial and so politically toxic for the Clinton administration uh, that Clinton signed a bill that effectively uh, eliminated that program. Um, There's a lot of opposition. Uh, Pat Moynihan memorably said that we would be seeing children uh, freezing to death on, on subway grates. Um, we didn't see that in part because the economy in the late 90s was really good. 
Um, but uh, I think people had internalized a lesson that you can't just give money for nothing. Um, that that that's that's how Democrats lose. That's how Republicans get us. Is that they they point out welfare queens and other people they think are unfairly benefiting from this. And different. And just to go back to something that you said uh, a few minutes ago and tie it together. So different than in other Western industrialized countries, we like to compare ourselves to where the idea of government checks to families with children as a fairly routine thing is not controversial. Correct. Absolutely. And I think also different from American history. Um, the, the story of, of child benefits is also sort of the history of 20th century feminism. Um, that the first programs we had like this um, were called mother's pensions, and they were passed in the 1920s for for World War One widows, huh. um, because the assumption in the 20s was uh, if you're a widow of someone who died in the war uh, and you have children, you shouldn't be expected to work because women generally didn't work, and so we'll give you money for nothing so that you don't work. And then eventually that program evolved, and by the 70s and 80s, the assumption was women should work even if they're single parents, um, and and so. What was the point of the program in the beginning? It's major flaw and what it got attacked for. But to to fast forward a bit to 2021, um, I think people had thought we had moved past this, and and I think ad- activists thought we had sort of moved past welfare reform politics and could, could give people money for being parents. Um, and I think they were over optimistic, and there were were people. I think Joe Manchin in the Senate most loudly. Um, but I think a lot of people in the Democratic coalition thought this was going too fast um, and that uh, that they were not actually comfortable with setting up a program that looked like they were reviving cash welfare. And uh, it became clear that uh, extending it beyond 2021, um, there just weren't the votes. I think it was also a context of it was an emergency and this had been passed as part of an emergency program. And that made it a little harder to extend because if the initial argument was we need this because this is a unique moment, and then you're saying, well, I want to make it permanent. Well, was it a unique moment or was was this something that you want as a permanent policy? Yeah. It's funny when you talk about how this ties to the history of feminism and the history of welfare reform. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in the, let's say, the post-Clinton years when they did away with that um, subsidy known as aid to families with dependent children that you were talking about before for low-income women, that traditional conservatives, we could call them traditionalist conservatives, were arguing this kind of paradoxical thing that these middle-class mothers who were out in the workforce in the name of feminism, they're abandoning their children, and they should go back home Right. So middle class women in the paid workforce should go back home. But low income women, especially single low income women, they should be forced to work by mm-hmm. government policy. What a paradox. But that's where we where we kind of landed. Or I guess we landed where just about everybody um, who wanted to and others who just needed to economically were going out to the workforce. But there was there was that paradox that was front and center in conservative ideology for a while. Absolutely. And and I think it it both fed on and, and sort of revealed some cleavages within conservatism. So there's there's religious conservatives who care a lot about the traditional family. There's uh, free market conservatives who uh, want lower taxes, lower uh, benefit programs. Uh, 
in Aid to Families with Dependent Children, they had a, an enemy they could both agree on, um, that it, it did have significant marriage penalties. Um, it did sort of implicitly favor single mothers over, over uh, partnered couples. And so traditional religious conservatives hated it for that reason. And it was a major benefit program. And so uh, the free marketers hated it for that reason. Um, but sometimes uh, the, the alliance would come apart. Um, there's a, an amazing book called American Dream by, by Jason DeParle uh, that's a history of welfare reform that I recommend listeners check out. Um, but one of the most remarkable moments in it is when uh, Republicans in Congress want to pass a bill that would ban for life all government benefits to uh, women who have a child before the age of 21. Just sort of a blanket ban on on any benefits to to teen or, or early 20s mothers and they didn't pass it not because of uh opposition that this was cruel or something but because anti-abortion groups begged them to, to not pass it because they they understood that if you passed a law like that it would lead to a surge in teen abortions so do you know how much this version is projected to lift kids out of poverty compared to what the studies found happened in 2021, which you said it cut child poverty from a third to a half, according to the experts. Yeah. So this is not not anywhere near that level of impact. Um, I, I would um, my my back of the envelope guess would be maybe a five to ten percent decrease in, um, in in child poverty. Um, that's not nothing. That matters a lot to those kids. And I should also emphasize that. When we're talking about reducing poverty, we're talking about the number of kids who who go above a certain line um, and going above that line really matters. But being closer to that line also matters. And there's there's millions more kids who will be less poor um, because they get this money, uh, even if they're still below the poverty line, um, their lives will be better. Um, so it's significant, um, but it's not uh, it's not the, the credit that. Uh, anti-poverty advocates and and some Democrats have been fighting for for a long time. It's right. uh, it's very much a, a partial measure, and that kind of implies a whole other conversation, which is why should anybody who works full time in the work in the workforce in the paid workforce um, be under the poverty line? Why aren't the minimum wage laws, living wage laws, whatever we want to call them, enough to guarantee that if you have a full time job, you are not in poverty in the United States? But that's a related but different discussion. Yeah. And, and and so how many people fall through the cracks in this respect? You write about two in five American households owe $0 in income taxes uh, or get money back on net. It reminds me of, you know, one of the reasons Mitt Romney lost the presidential election in 2012 to Barack Obama uh, because he got caught on tape saying that 47% of Americans were basically mooches because they made too, mo too little money to pay income taxes. Um, that's similar to the two and five figure, that's 40% that, that you cite. So that is to say enough people are poor in America that their, inc their federal income tax bill is zero, uh, that it equals 40%. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think Mid and I are getting that number from the exact same place, uh, which is uh, figures put out by, by the Tax Policy Center. Um, it was 47 percent when he was talking. It's it's 40 percent now. I think part of what was ironic about him saying that is that um, I think Republicans deserve some degree of credit for for that number being so high. Um, one of the things the Trump tax credits did, for instance, is that they more than doubled uh, the standard deduction. 
Um, and so uh, for a, a married couple now, um, you get a standard deduction of $27,700. Um, I know this because I was I was working on my taxes earlier. Um, and uh, and so if you earn less than that as a married couple, no income taxes. And then you can get credits on top of that, like the child credit. Um, you uh, um, There are other deductions and, and things you can add. Um, and that all put together um, results in a lot of people not owing. Another uh, group to mention are retirees. Um, some social security benefits are taxable, a lot aren't. Um, some pensions are, are taxable, a lot aren't. Uh, if you have Roth savings, uh, that's generally not taxable. Um, and, and so all these measures, many of which were supported by Republicans as part of, of broader tax cut packages, have added up to um, a significant share of Americans not owing uh, income taxes. Um, I feel obliged to say here, the uh, many of these, many if not most of these people pay payroll taxes. Um, almost all of them pay sales taxes on a uh, on a local right. level. Right. Um, uh, and so I, I think the implication of mooching is is uh, is not fair. Um, but it does raise questions about programs like the child tax credit and whether they should be limited to people who who owe taxes if um, the share of people who don't is is large and and has risen a lot in recent decades. So you've been comparing the United States to European countries in this respect, and we are lucky enough to be getting a call from Europe. Here is Mari in Switzerland. You're on WNYC. Hi, Mari. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in this topic because um, we are immigrants from the U.S. to Switzerland, and our family used to get a child tax credit for our daughter when she was living with us. Uh, she's now uh, older than 18, and she moved back to the U.S., but for the three years she was here, we got money back from the government, and it is treated as totally normal and a great policy to encourage people to have kids and to make things a little bit easier for them. So I'm a fan. <laughs> Mari, thank, thank you very much. Lisa in Maplewood, you're on WNYC. Hi, Lisa. Hi, hello. Um, I have a question for your guest about if there's any work being done for people in poverty, but just working people in general, about compensating parents for childcare. Uh, we know what that can cost when you have to pay for it. And do people ever talk about how many parents do the second shift, but they're not paid for that other job? Um, or they're adding a lot of value to the economy by taking care of kids, um, but we don't have a, a quantity or an amount of money for that. Yeah, and that's why I'm always careful to use the language of uh, women who work outside the home or any parents who work outside the home or in the paid workforce as opposed to just who work because obviously it's unpaid work, but it is work to be home with kids. So, Dylan, what do you say? Sure, and I, I think there's there's a long um, activist history behind the idea of wages for housework. Um, Sylvia Federici, uh, who's, who's at Hofstra, um, is I think the scholar most associated with that idea, but it was a major movement among uh, radical and Marxist feminists in the, the 1970s, um, and I think has has a long and distinguished history. And I think some have have thought of um, of the child credit and child allowances as a way of of implementing that. Um, I think this does get into a debate that sometimes happens in in national politics 
there are some conservatives who are sort of sympathetic to ideas like a child allowance um, on sort of traditional family grounds that they want to encourage people to have more kids. They want to support families with kids. Um, so they're attracted to it. Um, those same people tend to be fairly hostile to direct subsidies for child care, for, for subsidies to child care centers, for nannies, for au pairs, um, because they have a particular notion of what a family should look like and, and a particular model they want to promote. Uh, and they view subsidizing child care um, uh, outside the home as favoring one model of family over another, favoring working mothers over um, uh, sort of working outside the house mothers uh, ahead of stay-at-home mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think uh, there's more room for bipartisan compromise when it comes to just giving cash directly to parents regardless of their, their care situation. Um, but... Uh, it's also true that um, the amounts of money we're talking about for for the child credit, um, I mean, we're talking about two thousand dollars a year maximum. Uh, that doesn't get you very far in in a child care center in Brooklyn, say. I said way back in the intro that even though this deal seems to have been struck between a leading Democrat and a leading Republican in Congress, it isn't done yet. And if I'm reading this right, they only have until the end of the month to get it passed so that it would apply to the 2023 tax year that people are now starting to fill out their taxes for. So what are the politics of of this in Congress and are there factions who might block it? Sure. So I think there there's a couple of forms of opposition we've seen. One is uh, Republicans who don't care particularly about the, the business tax cuts and, and oppose the, the child uh, credit changes. Um, so I think we'll, we'll see some opposition from them. Uh, a more surprising angle is uh, some sort of Democrats have criticized it for not going far enough or for, for giving too much to corporations and not enough to, to children. Uh, Rosa DeLauro, um, who has been a, a historically a big backer of the child credit, has has signaled that she might oppose the, the bill uh, oh. on those grounds. From Connecticut. Um, uh, from Connecticut, represents New Haven. Um, and yeah, so I, my my very scientific view is that the maybe has a fifty fifty shot, um, but uh, Congress has passed things that that affect sort of ongoing tax years before, um, and uh, they they did that in in twenty twenty one by by changing how unemployment was treated. Um, so it could happen. Um, I can say I, I volunteer at a, a tax site where we do tax preparation for for low income families and. We're all we're all bracing for if it suddenly changes in the middle of our tax season, and um, well, that might be be a little more paperwork for us. It would be a a win for our clients. So something to watch between now and the end of the month in Congress, and we leave it there with Dylan Matthews, senior correspondent and lead writer at Vox, and now we know a volunteer for filling out uh, tax returns for low income families. Thanks so much for coming on, Dylan. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.